I'm going to call our attention to a very important part of God's Word this morning in 1 Peter chapter 4. If you would like to follow in your Bible, uh, it's also on the screen behind us in the New International Version. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, right through to verse 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. And to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The Christians who lived in New Testament times had a profound sense that they were living in the last times. They had seen the fulfillment of so many things that their forefathers had looked forward to. The Messiah had come, and he had, through his redemptive death on the cross, purchased salvation for humanity. Jesus had been raised from the dead, the first installment of all who will be raised from the dead. Jesus had ascended into heaven, was seated at the Father's right hand, and all the other powers in the universe were subject to him. He was Lord of all. God had sent his spirit on the day of Pentecost in a surprising way. And now that old barrier between Jew and Gentile had been broken down, and God was creating a new people for himself not based on ethnicity, but based on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news about this good work that God was doing was being spread throughout the Roman Empire. Can you imagine the excitement that those early Christians felt as they realized that the end of the ages had dawned, that they were privileged to live in a time that their forefathers had only been able to look forward to. The prophecies were being fulfilled. They were living in that last stage of the execution of God's great plan for the salvation of humanity. They lived with the realization that God was bringing his plan for the salvation of the world to its culmination And the final stage would conclude with the return of Christ in glory. What then ought Christians to do? In the light of where they were, what ought they to do? Quit their jobs? Don white robes? Climb the highest mountain around and wait for that climax? the return of Jesus? Well, that's not what Peter advised them to do. The passage of Scripture that Pastor Ken read for us, 
He reminds the readers the end is at hand, the end is near. And then he gives them some very straightforward instruction as to how they ought to respond, how they ought to live in the light of the end. He didn't want his readers to be thrown into confusion. He didn't want them to be in turmoil. He wanted them, he says, to be clear-minded and self-controlled to understand properly where they were in the unfolding of God's plan of salvation and to live appropriately in the light of that. Well, we're living 2,000 years later. And the excitement those early Christians experienced as they thought of the soon return of Christ may have cooled for us over the passage of time. But we're still in the same position that they were in. We're still in that period between the advents when the beginning of God's work of salvation has already taken place and we're awaiting its culmination in Christ's return. So how ought we to live? The first thing our author suggests to us is that we need to look at our prayer lives. Notice what Peter says in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Christ is going to return. No one knows the day or the hour. We do not know when that will happen. But that ought to be, Peter suggests, an incentive for us to be faithful in our prayers. It ought to be a powerful incentive to maintain a healthy prayer life. I suspect that almost all of us recognize the importance of having a healthy prayer life, the value of having a healthy prayer life. But probably there are very few, if any of us, who are satisfied that we have that kind of prayer life, that our practice is in keeping with what we might desire. And Peter reminds us that we need to be careful to carve out time to spend with God. And to do that, we need to be clear-minded and self-controlled. The word that's translated clear-minded here could be translated also reasonable or sensible, It has to do with using good sense or using good judgment. Apostle Paul uses the same word in Romans 12.3 when he says, Think of yourself with sober judgment. Exercise sober judgment. He also says that we should be self-controlled. And this is a word very similar in meaning to the first word. This word is used by Paul in 2 Timothy 4.5 when he tells Timothy to keep his head in all circumstances. In other words, what Peter is saying here is don't become confused. Don't let your emotions control your behavior. Think carefully. Think soberly about what what you should be doing. Think carefully about the situation you find yourself in and how you ought to pray in the light of that situation. By urging us to be clear-minded and self-controlled, Peter is saying that prayer requires 
discipline. Apostle Peter could remember a time when what he's asking of his readers here wasn't present in his own life. He could remember a time when he was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of the crucifixion. You remember on that occasion that Jesus took with him the three closest friends that he had among the twelve disciples, Peter, James, and John, to be with him in this time of struggle as he battled with his desire to be relieved of the cup of suffering he was about to face. And as he struggled with that, Peter was one of the ones that was present with him. And he wanted to have their support in prayer. But three times Jesus returned to his closest friends. Instead of finding them in prayer with him, he found them asleep. And one of those occasions, Jesus spoke directly to Peter, words that I'm sure he never forgot. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Can you identify with that at all? The spirit is willing. I want to be more faithful in prayer, but the body is weak. Life gets busy, and it's hard to find the time and the place to spend in private devotions. But finding a time and place to spend time with God is worth the effort. It's of great benefit to us. But it's not easy. Perhaps you've heard the story of Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley. John Wesley was the leader of the Methodist movement. His brother Charles was one of the greatest hymn writers in history. Their mother had 19 children. And her practice to find a time and place to pray was that she would sit in her kitchen, take her apron, and put it over her head. And when her children saw her in that position, they knew she was not to be disturbed. She was having her devotion. She was praying, and they were not to bother her. Well, life is busy. You may have to be creative to find a time and place to pray. But it's important that we do so. We need to be disciplined for prayer. The second thing Peter calls our attention to is to commit ourselves to sincere love. Notice verses 8 and 9 of chapter 4. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Peter was not only concerned with his readers' relationship with God and their prayer life, he was also concerned about their relationship with one another and the love that they displayed in their relationship with one another. Now, he's not suggesting here that they were bittering, bickering and fighting with one another and there was a total lack of love in these Christian communities. Far from that, in fact. Back in chapter 1, he says, You have love for the brothers. And then he adds, therefore love one another deeply from the heart. It's not that love is absent. Love is present, but you can take it 
to a deeper level, is what he's suggesting. You should not become complacent about the degree to which love is manifested in your community. You can always grow in love. The Apostle Paul expresses a very similar idea in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 and 10, when he says, Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Now, notice what Paul is doing here. He's saying, you know this very well. I'm not teaching you something you've never heard before. You know it's important to show brotherly love. And furthermore, you're doing it. There is brotherly love being manifested in your community. But don't be content with that. Do so more and more. Loving one another is not something that you reach the pinnacle of and there's no further progress that you can make beyond that. It's something one can always improve. You can always grow in love. It would be hard to exaggerate the importance that the New Testament places on the virtue of love. There are three virtues that we call the cardinal Christian virtues that often appear together in the New Testament. Faith, hope, and love. But do you remember the words of 1 Corinthians 13? But the greatest of these, the most important virtue of the important virtues, is love. There's nothing more important than this. Here in 1 Peter, Peter refers to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, when he says, Love covers over a multitude of sins. Hatred calls attention to sin. Hatred looks for things to be offended about. Hatred delights in revenge for the offenses that have been committed against us. But love, Peter says, covers over sins. Love is characterized by the willingness to overlook the slights of others, whether intended or unintended. Love puts the best possible construction on a situation that might be ambiguous and where you could take it in a negative way. Love takes it in a positive way. Love is slow to take offense and quick to grant forgiveness. Did you catch that? Slow to take offense and quick to grant forgiveness. At the end of the first century, there was a bishop in the Church of Rome by the name of Clement. He wrote a letter to the Christians in Corinth. It's the earliest document we have from the period after the New Testament. And in this letter, Clement quotes this phrase from 1 Peter that love covers over a multitude of sins. And then he adds a little explanation, a little commentary, if you will, on that. And this is what Clement says. 
Love endures all things, is patient in all things. There is nothing coarse, nothing arrogant in love. Love knows nothing of schisms. Love leads no rebellion. Love does everything in harmony. Love works against divisions. Love works towards healing and harmony, is what Clement was trying to suggest there. Peter goes on to say, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And what I think he's doing here is he's simply moving from the general concept of love to a specific expression of love. Because it's easy for conversation about love to remain at a very abstract level. And we need to take it down to the concrete. We need to think in terms of specific ways that love comes to expression in our daily lives. And Peter refers to the example of showing hospitality. And that was very important in the ancient world. Although there were inns, there were few and far between. They were expensive. They were often associated with immorality. And so when Christians traveled, they counted on the hospitality of fellow believers. And it was quite common for Christians to open their homes, to give people a place to stay overnight. And that's what Peter's probably referring to here, that you should show your love through being prepared to open your homes to fellow believers. But hospitality can come to expression in a lot of different ways. It can be expressed not only by inviting people into our homes, but by inviting people into our circle of friends. We're blessed at TCC that there is not a Sunday that goes by that we don't have visitors in our congregation. We just regularly have new people here. And we need to be a community that practices hospitality, that helps people to feel welcome, that helps people to feel at home. Peter calls us to sincere love, sincere love that comes to concrete expression in hospitality. The third exhortation that Peter gives us here is in verses 10 and 11. And it's an exhortation to serve one another with our gifts. Peter writes, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter's reminding us here that church is not a place where we go to be entertained, where we go to sit in the bleachers as spectators. But church is a place where we go to serve and that we all ought to be involved in one form or another of service, that every Christian is gifted, regardless of age or gender or education or ethnicity, 
We are all gifted, and those gifts ought to be used for the good of the body of Christ, to serve one another for the benefit of others. Peter actually speaks of this as a stewardship. In verse 10, he says, faithfully administering God's grace. At least that's the version that Pastor Ken read for us and the version that probably most of us have in our NIV translations of the Bible. But in the revision of the NIV that was completed a year ago, this is modified slightly. And the translation in the new edition of the NIV is as faithful stewards of God's grace. Our gifts are to be seen as a stewardship. We often talk about stewardship in the financial realm, that we're to be good stewards of the money that we have. But Peter's suggesting here we should be good stewards of the gifts we have, that we've been entrusted with these things to put to use, to use them for the good of the kingdom and for the good of the church. In New Testament times, a steward was a person who was responsible for how the belongings of the household were used. The steward didn't own those things. The master of the household owned them. But he was responsible for how they were used. And that's the imagery that Peter uses to describe our giftedness. But what are the gifts that we have as Christians? Well, unlike Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, Peter doesn't give us a list here of specific functions that we might perform in the body of Christ. He rather speaks in in terms of two broad categories. He talks about speaking and serving, these two large categories of giftedness. The gift of speaking seems to refer to the particular gift exercised by those who have a preaching teaching ministry within the church. Because Peter reminds them that they are to teach the word of God. That their responsibility is not to present their own ideas or their own speculations, but to make sure that what they present is the word of God. But it's not only those who stand in the pulpit. It's not only those who have the very visible ministry of public preaching and teaching that are gifted. All of us are gifted. All of us can serve in one way or another. So Peter uses this very comprehensive term, service. And that service can take a wide variety of forms. In Romans 12, Paul talks about the gift of encouraging, the gift of contributing to the needs of others, the gift of showing mercy. These are just specific ways in which we can serve one another. The question is, of course, are we using those gifts? Are we exercising good stewardship over those gifts? Are we putting those gifts into practice? There are so many opportunities to serve. We all very much enjoy the brunch that we celebrate together each Sunday after church. But that can only happen because of dedicated volunteers who are there Sunday by Sunday preparing and cleaning up after that meal. We're blessed at TCC with a large number of young families and lots of children, and we have a great children's program here. But it takes a small army for that program to operate. It takes a lot of people who are willing to serve. 
for those ministries to take place. So Peter urges us to use our gifts to serve others. And he says that those who serve should do so with the strength that God supplies so that God may be praised through Jesus Christ. In other words, using our gifts to help one another is not only a benefit to those that we serve, it ultimately brings praise to God. Ultimately, it is an act of worship. God is pleased when we serve one another. And that, of course, is not just true of the use of our gifts. That applies equally to the other things that Peter challenges us to in this text. We take up his challenge to discipline prayer. When we exhibit sincere love to one another. When we exercise our God-given gifts to serve one another. We are doing something that brings honor to God. We are engaging in an act of worship. We've come together today to have a period of corporate worship. And we delight to sing God's praises when we meet together on a Sunday morning. But worship is not confined to one hour a week. Worship is not confined to those times when we are gathered corporately to sing God's praises. God is honored on those occasions. He is honored with our lips. But God is also honored with our lives. So let's respond to his love and to his grace, not only with our words, but also with our actions. Amen? Amen.